What's up, Grace Church? My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm glad that you guys are here. And I'm kind of aggravated that he is complaining about the hot weather. That, that bothers me. How many of you guys are okay with the hot weather because we know it don't last around here? Right? Okay. Uh, some of you guys are in that retirement age, and you're like, what, it gets cold here? Because you're a snowbird. You go down to Florida every year. We don't hate you. We just, well, we, we hate you because we ain't you. That's what that's all about. But I'm really glad that you guys are here. We're in the fifth week of a six-week series called The End. Uh, this series goes over uh, what the Bible has to say about the end of the world. And it is a series that I put off for 13 years. Uh, mainly because of the dysfunctional religious history of my own past. Uh, I grew up in, 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 the, in the 70s and early 80s. Now you guys are doing math to find out how old I am. But I'm just saying I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And it seems like the churches that uh, I, our, our family were always in were obsessed with like the book of Revelation. And were 100% convinced the rapture was going to happen at any moment. And uh, there was even a cheesy movie put out in the 70s uh, called, uh, I, I, I actually, I think, it's, I think it's called A Distant Thunder. How many of you guys, did anybody see that movie as a kid? Anybody else traumatized as a kid? Uh, because uh, the idea of this movie is that God was going to come back and then uh, take away all the Christians. Uh, and then now that they were out of the way, uh, he, he could jack us all up. So um, then, then as a kid, anytime I would come home from the school and my mom wasn't, she didn't have a job. Or she had a job, but that, I was her full-time job. So yeah, and I made that chick work over time. Uh, but like when I'd come home, if mom wasn't there, I'd, I, oh my word, the rapture happened. Like, I'd, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saved. Uh, and then I'd, I'd, I'd call a couple of people in our church that I, that I thought were probably Christians. And like if they didn't answer the phone, then I was like 100% convinced. Like the rapture had happened. And now I was going to like go through all this horrible stuff that's in the, like, I, I'm not even lying. That was like a dramatic part of my early adolescence is about 50% of the time I thought I wasn't a follower of God and that I was going to be left behind um, is, is what, I, what I thought. So I, 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 I wasn't introduced to this book in a healthy fashion. Uh, can, I, can I just put it that way? Uh, so I've been putting it off uh, early on in our church's story when we were just a Bible study in our house. Uh, I was frequently asked this by by Christians that had, you know, found their way into our Bible study. So, hey, are you going to do a study on the book of Revelations? And I'm like, nope, hit up YouTube if you want to see that. That ain't here. Uh, just because it's so crazy. There's stuff in here like, like a dragon with seven heads and, 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 and ten horns, seven horns and, and ten crowns. And, and, and I'm sorry if I got the ten and the seven backwards. It's all weird. So I just, like, what do you what do, you do with all of that stuff? Uh, so, but it's in the Bible. So it's one of these deals where, like, okay, I, I, need, I need to figure this out. Um, because if we're going to believe God's word, I believe that all of it is useful for us, uh, not just for information, but for transformation, right? So what does this book have to do with the way that we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis? So that was the approach I took in prepping for this teaching series. And then I found out in the very, getting ready for the very first week that there's a promise that God gives to all of those who will read this book. And he says there's a special a blessing that you get for reading this book and applying its teachings to your life that you don't get by reading any other book of the Bible. This one, I was like, that's the stuff I want to find. Like, that's, that's, that, that, that is it. 
And, and so I, I approach this book not from a fearful, like it's a creepy, uh, but like a there's, there's, like, like there's gold in this book that God intends us to get from it. And let us mi- let's mine that gold and figure out uh, what, what, that, what that is. And, and it, the, the book of Revelations actually answers, I think, one of life's most pressing questions, whether you're religious or not. And that is... Uh, if there's good, if there's a God and he's good, why does he leave so much evil around? Like, like, for, like, like we all, like you don't have to be religious to recognize the world is broken. How I many of you guys would, real, would, would admit or you agree with me like this world is jacked up? Raise your hand if you think the world's jacked up. I'm not saying there's no good in it. I'm just saying there's a lot of junk around here. Right, like, 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 like trafficking and, and abuse, and, and then I can get more personal and in, into the things that we've experienced. But I'm not wanting to open up doors that we've had locked for a long time. I'm just saying, like this, like this world is, is well, the Job, probably the oldest book in the Bible. It's not the first one in the Bible, but it's probably the oldest uh, his, historically. There you go. That's what I was looking for. Um, but he says, man is just few days and full of sorrows. So. There are those who would look at the evil that is in the world and then say one of two things. Either there is no God or there's a God, but he definitely isn't good. Right? Because how can you be all-powerful, be all-beneficent, ben- 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 kind? How can you be all-kind <laughs> and, then, and then not like squash evil? And the Bible answers this question. So we opened up this series with this verse, and we're going to look at it again. So if you've got your Bible, go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Or write it down in your notes and look at it later. But 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 9 says this. Uh, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. The promise that he's talking about in 2 Peter chapter 3 is the promise to repay evil. Uh, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. So that's, that's, that was God's promise. God's, God says, I don't want you to fight evil with evil. Um, and that was the message, honestly, that Martin Luther King uh, Jr. preached, is that the way that, you overcome, the, the way that you overcome evil is not by compounding it. It's, it's by putting it out. Uh, let, let, let like the evilness of their own deeds in contrast, in contrast to the goodness that is in your heart uh, soften, soften and, and change their heart. And so that... Second Peter talks about that. Don't repay evil for evil. Uh, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And then we sit here in this world and we go, so where is God's vengeance? So he says here at the end of his book, um, he says that God's not being slow in keeping his promise. Back at it. Uh, as some people think that he is. No. He's being patient. Then why, why is God being patient with evildoers? Like, like with the evil that is in the world, why would God be patient towards evil? And for whose sake is God being patient, according to that verse? What's the next phrase? For your sake. Why? Because there's evil in you. There's evil in me. See, I do want God to get back at all of those people who've hurt others, but I don't want him to get back at me when I hurt others because it was an accident or I feel justified or I've, I've got a rationalization on why it's okay for me to behave badly. I just don't think anybody else should behave badly, especially towards me. Isn't that right? We want everybody else to get caught, just not us when we did the same thing. Right? So I said, I'm being patient. Why? For your sake. I'm not willing that anybody perish, but that all people come to repentance, as Ken mentioned in the prayer that he prayed before I, I, I walked up. 
that God, God doesn't want any, or he asked us to pray for our friends because God, God's not willing that anybody should, should receive that, that judgment. So, but because he's a good God, it's got to come. Um, so it, it, it'd be like the Dedham District Court. Um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you ever stood in front of that guy. That'd be a little bit embarrassing, uh, but there's a few of us. Uh, so uh, it's none of your business why. Um, the drugs weren't mine. Um, they were my wife's, but I'm just kidding. They were my sons, but no, I'm just kidding. That's not true. It's true either. <laughs> it was Pastor Ken's. I was covering for him. That's who it was. It's Pastor Ken's drugs. Um, no, but if, if you were found guilty of some type of a crime, should the judge let you off? And you would say yes if it's who? Right. But if it was anybody else who sold drugs to your kid, should they be let off? No. You see what I'm saying? Like we're, we're all, everybody in this, raise your hand if you're a hypocrite. If your hand ain't up, now we know who it really is. Okay, like we, we, want, we want everybody treated fairly except us. We want a little extra fair. Uh, that's, that's really the, the, way that it, the way that it is. But if God is good, he can't let guilty people off the hook. But what he can do is put off sentencing. And that's what he's doing right now. He's put off. Every one of us have been judged and found guilty of breaking God's laws. We've broken all ten of them. All ten of them we've broken. And the first four, about our relationship with God. The second six, about our relationship with others. We've all, we've all rebelled against God at some point in our life or are now. And we've all been selfish towards our fellow man. Every one of us have, we, we in our own hearts, we know we're guilty. If I were to ask you right now, how many of you are innocent of ever breaking God's law or being selfish towards somebody else? If you're innocent of that, raise your hand. If I ask, I'm not going to because somebody who's not paying attention would raise their hand, right? But none of us would raise our hand because we all know in our heart, our, we have consciences. <laughs> I, I hope you still have a conscience. But it, would, it convicts us. We, we know that we're guilty. We know we're guilty. And if God is good... We must be punished for that. But because he's love, Peter says he's delayed sentencing. But if he's going to delay sentencing for you, then you can't gripe and moan when he's delayed sentencing for others. Even those that you feel are more guilty than you. Are you, are you with me? So that's, that's, what he's, <clears throat> that's, that's what he said. And the book of Revelations is God finally getting to the sentencing part of humanity. It's God going, I've, I've delayed this long enough, and, and now it's time to pay the piper. That's, 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 that's what it is. And so John, John tells us everything that's coming so that those of us whose sin has already been paid for, by who? By Jesus, don't have to be afraid of what's coming. I don't know if you're ever a little kid, and uh, like you and any of your other siblings, if you, had, uh, if you had a sibling, if you're not an only child, and mom or dad come in the house upset at one of you, and, but like both of you are terrified. Has that ever happened? Anybody like, like you just like, I'm just getting like some fear shrapnel right now. Like I know this isn't like aimed at me. Like this anger grenade isn't for me. It's for my brother Brian. But like I'm getting some of the shrapnel from this, right? So, so you know, sometimes it's helpful when your dad says, now, now listen, you didn't do anything wrong. I'm just angry right now, right? Is that, anybody's parents ever done this? Um, no, no, they just treat you all bad all the time. I'm just checking. We're like, yeah, it's very traumatic. We have counseling after the services today. 
if, if you guys need it. So what John does is he goes, now listen, God's judgment is coming into the world. But this judgment is, going, is not going to be poured out on everybody. Because there are those of us who've already allowed God's judgment to be poured out on someone else for us. And that's for those of you guys who've turned from your sin, placed your faith and trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as the recipient of God's judgment in your place. So while you read all of this, you don't need to be afraid of this. Because God's judgment isn't for you. I mean, it is, but it's already been poured out on Jesus for you. But for those who have not, it's, it's time to pay the piper. So the book is divided up into three parts. The first part is a message to those who are followers of Jesus in the world until judgment gets here. And that's where we're at right now. The second part of the book of Revelations is the biggest part of the book, and that is the meeting out of the 21 different sentences that God pours out on mankind, on everybody alive in the world at the time. He pours out this, and he pours out this, and he pours out this. And by the way, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25 that when the world gets as bad as it was in the days of Noah, that's when God will finally bring sentencing. So as bad as it is now, it's not as bad as it's going to get. Like, it's going to get worse here in the world. We're, we're not going to fix this. It doesn't matter what form of government you choose. It's going to be broken and abusive because it's going to be run by people who are broken and abusive. Right? So, it, like, get your favorite party elected. It isn't going to change the evil in the world because the evil that is in the world is not in a White House or a building in Washington, D.C. The evil that is in the world is in the hearts of each one of us. That's, that's, where, the problem, that's where the problem lies. So, um, then the third part of the book of Revelation uh, is God hitting the reset button. And that's where we're going to get to next week, the last week in this series. <clears throat> Um, but today we're going to look at the end of everything we see as, as we know it. So this is like, this is, this is like, boom. This is like, like if, if, if the, the guilty person has been sentenced to die, this is them going to the electric chair and the lights flickering and not trying to be gross or morbid. I'm just saying that this is the end of everything. Uh, this is the end of the world as we know it. It's the end. Okay, except it's not so jolly, all right? It's not so jolly. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, go to uh, Revelation chapter 20. That's, that's where we're at, Revelation chapter 20. Now, to catch you up, if this is your first week in the series, <laughs> I'm sorry. If this is your first, if you're a first timer today, by the way, I really am glad that you're here. You are hopping in a really weird church service, Okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't even know what to tell you. So, like the first week in this series, we, just, we, we talked about what's wrong with church in the world today. And truthfully, you probably could add to that list, right? Uh, in the second week of this series, we talked about Jesus being given the title, the deed to earth. Uh, like that God the Son being given authority over all of creation to take back the world from evil and brokenness. Uh, from God the Father, that was week two. Week three in this series was us going through that large chunk of the book of Revelation covering just the 21 different sentences. Uh, week four in this series was last week, and that was what happens to people who, who were, went into that period of sentencing, uh, disconnected from God, but during that time re acknowledged that they had sinned against a holy and righteous God? Like, was, was, were they without hope? Could they, after the first judgment, what if somebody said, I'm, you're right, I'm sorry. Like, what happens? Do they still get the other 20? 
We found out the answer was no. And that after each one of the judgments, uh, God even makes the statement that and still mankind would not repent of the sin that was in their heart, meaning that they, had, they still had opportunities. So what, what happens with them? Um, and those who turn from sin to begin followers of Jesus as the rescuer of mankind from the sin that is in the hearts of mankind who flee during this time of judgment will be spared. Uh, and then, but there's a whole bunch of them, hundreds of thousands of them, who do not run from persecution, but keep preaching boldly during this time of judgment so that other people will be rec rec uh, excuse me, reconciled to God and, and rescued uh, also. Uh, but then there's a period in those 21 judgments where the leader of those who rebelled against God, we know him like uh, through pop culture as the Antichrist. If you've ever heard of that phrase before, that's a real future figure <clears throat> who becomes the leader of a one-world government that rises up against and then persecutes Christians and Jews all over the world and, and to, the de to the death, and then they, they die. Uh, they're going to, those who died during this time of tribulation are mentioned in, the, in chapter 20, which is the reason why I'm referencing them right now. Uh, but those of us who, who lived before this time of judgment, those of us who lived uh, and are the recipients of the messages from those first three chapters of the book of Revelations, the, the followers of Jesus from, from the time of Christ until the time of sentencing, um, at some point during those seven years, we're brought into the presence of God and we're declared uh, righteous, not because of our own righteousness, but because of Jesus's. And then we are rewarded based on the things that we had done in light of our obedience towards God and our selfishness towards our fellow man. So where the, a Christian spends eternity is the exact same place as every other Christian. But what we enter eternity with is completely unique to the choices that we make in the way that we live our lives un until we get there. So that's, that's what that's all about. And then, then at the end of those 21 judgments, um, Jesus comes down on a, on a white horse, and, uh, which is awesome. And then uh, because we're all on white horses too, and, uh, which is also awesome. And, and we get to watch as Jesus, like, you know, brings out the lumber. And, and it's right after that battle, which is in the Valley of Megiddo, which is where the phrase, the Battle of Armageddon, comes from. Uh, you've probably seen the Bruce Willis movie, so you know, that, you know, Ben Affleck's first movie, so, you know, we know what Armageddon's all about. It's about NASA rescuing us from a, no, that's not what it's about. Um, but the Battle of Armageddon is at the end of chapter 19. So now, everybody who had rejected God has now gotten what they wished for. Life without God, which, which is death. Uh, C.S. Lewis said famously back in the 50s, he said there are only two types of people in the world. Those that say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, fine, your will be done. So if, if you want to enter eternity disconnected from God, then you will get exactly what you want, to spend eternity separated from God. And so they finally get what they asked for. And now there's not a single person on the planet who has rejected God. They've all gotten their wish, every, every single one of them. Now the only people, and, and by the way, after the 21 judgments, this ball of rock is jacked up. So that was, that was two weeks ago, if, if you want to catch up on, on that. So here we are in chapter 20, and it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, 
that old serpent who is the devil. We talked about that. Like I told you, there's some imagery of a dragon. So he, he tells some poems which are met metaphorical, uh, and, and he uses a dragon to talk about uh, Satan. But here at the end of the book, he's getting to the end, and so there's like, there's the, the imagery is over. Uh, but so that angel grabs that dragon, and he goes, by the way, you guys knew that was Satan that I was talking about, right, when I used that metaphor? And, and we did. We already talked about that. Uh, he grabs the dragon, that old serpent who is the devil, Satan, and he bound him in chains for a thousand years. Uh, verse 3, the angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so that Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must be released for a little while, but we're going to get to that in a few minutes. And that's, that's not hell, by the way. That's, that's the bottomless pit, and it's only referred to as the bottomless pit in the last book of the Bible, but it's also referred to in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, and in other uh, parts of the New Testament, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Greek scriptures. It's referred to as the abyss, uh, most famously probably in Luke chapter 8, where there's a story of Jesus casting out demons from, from two different crazy guys. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, they're doesn't matter. I'm about to get de derailed by the details of the story. It's one of my favorite sermons. And when I get to go be a guest preacher somewhere, I'll often preach about those two nude dudes with, with demon possession. I just said nude, and they are naked, which is kind of the cool part of the story. But that sounded weird. I'm not. Can I just move on from here? I said I wasn't going to get stuck, and then I got stuck. All right? Uh, but when Jesus cast the demons out, the demons said, uh, through whatever demon is their representative, I don't know if there's a vote or what, but, but, or maybe they all said it in unison, I have no idea, but that would be weird. But uh, they said to Jesus, uh, please don't cast us into the abyss, uh, but cast us into those, those pigs on, on the hill. And then one of the craziest unanswered questions in the Bible is why Jesus actually granted their request. I, I don't know why he did. Uh, but, he, but he did. And so he didn't send them into the, the abyss. Now, we also know from the 21 different judgments that we went over two weeks ago that any demon that had ever been cast into the bottomless pit had been set free, and they were the ones wreaking, wreaking havoc on the earth. So the bottomless pit is empty. <laughs> but not now, because Satan, Satan now, for the first time, now he has to go there. He's never been there before. The Bible says he's roaming to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. He's causing havoc in the world right now. So he's never spent time there. Uh, some of his other minions have, uh, but, but he hasn't, but, but he will. And, and that's this passage of Scripture uh, right here. Now, at the end of the chapter, hell is going to be mentioned. It says uh, the grave. The word that's actually used there uh, is the Greek word uh, for, for Hades. And um, uh, there's, there's a story about hell. And by the way, Jesus talked about hell twice as often as he talked about heaven. I don't know if you know that or not. And it's not because Jesus was trying to manipulate people into following his message or to scare people into the truth. I think Jesus is just honestly, genuinely concerned of the consequences of us rejecting the only sacrifice that God's ever made on your behalf for the debt you've racked up against him. It'd be like me as a parent. I've got three kids, and all three of them, we taught them to hold hands with somebody else and to look both ways before they cross the street. And to impress on them the importance of doing what we said, I didn't tell them all of the benefits of getting to the other side of the street. I told them what would happen if they didn't. So, Dad, why you got to be so negative? You're always talking about cars squashing me. Why can't you talk about the picnic on the other side of the road? Right? You're so negative. No, I'm, I, I, I love you. That's, that's the point. 
Like if you're only focused on the picnic all the time, you might forget to hold hands. But if you recognize that the consequences of not looking both ways is that you do get squashed by a truck, then I have done my job. Shut your mouth, look both ways, hold my hand. Are you with me? So he talks about hell twice as often. Not out of any sense of manipulation or scare tactic. It's to impress on us the importance of the decision you're going to make on whether or not you repent of the sin that is in your heart and turn and accept the only payment that God's ever made to pay off your debt. If you reject the only payment God's ever made on your behalf for your sin, then guess who must pay for your sin? You. Why? Because God is good. That's why. So Jesus talked about it a lot. Some people think that death is just this, excuse me, that hell is just this emptiness, that hell is just going into oblivion. Or once you die, those who go in, into hell are, you know, are just annihilated and they, they cease to exist. But that's not how the Bible describes it at all. Jesus often talks about there be weeping and gnashing of teeth and there's darkness and then there's fire. And, and I don't know exactly how, you know, if it's fire, it, like how is, how is it dark? And, you know, I know that like the hottest part of the flame is like clear, I think, or something like that. So... Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I know how he describes it. I can't explain everything about it. But there's a story that Jesus tells that we're going to look at in Luke chapter 16. If you've got your Bible, I want you to go to Luke chapter 16. And I want you to see the way that Jesus describes uh, hell for us. Um, but in Luke chapter 16, um, uh, we see this story where Jesus is teaching. And, and it's referred to uh, often as a parable. Now, a parable is a fictitious story that Jesus tells. Uh, but I, I, that, that, he, that he fabricates. And, and it's not like an Aesop's fable where, where there's a talking rabbit or there's a, you know, the tortoise and the hare, and then they're racing a race and against each other. Like the parables Jesus told were not, were not like nursery rhymes or fairy tales. The stories he told were like examples. It, it'd be like, uh, like the one I just gave you about holding hands before you cross the road. That would be a fable. Or, excuse me, that would not be a fable. That would be a, par that would be a parable. Uh, it's a story that I told for the use of illustration that's grounded in reality. Uh, I didn't talk about anybody flying over this street or becoming invisible like Nightcrawler or bamfing to one side or the other side. A little Marvel reference for the geeks in the room. Um, but because those aren't grounded in reality, I talked about grabbing hold of a hand of, of, of a parent and walking across the street and looking both ways. And while there's no particular instance or story I'm thinking of when I tell you that story, I'm making that story up. Everything about that story is completely real and matches your own experience. Experiences. Does that make sense? That's the difference between a fairy tale and a parable. So Jesus said it'd be like, a, like he told the parable of the sower, a guy who goes out to sow seed. And, and they didn't have the farm equipment that we had now. They would have a bag over their shoulder. They would reach into it, and they would scatter the seed like this. And when Jesus told the made-up story of the parable of the, store, the, the sower, he said some seed falls on good ground. Some seed falls on the ground that's got weeds. Some seed falls on the ground next to the road, and some seed falls on the road, right? Okay, that's, there's, there's no like made up stuff in that story at all. It's all rooted in, 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 in reality. And, and truthfully, I don't think this story is even a made up one. I think it's a real story about two real people 
and, and the reason why I'll get to uh, as we read it. Luke chapter 16, verse 19, it says, uh, and There was a certain rich man who, had, who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who had lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. And that's why, that's the first reason why uh, I believe, so there's two reasons why I don't believe this is a made-up story, but it's an, a story of an actual person and an actual event that Jesus is aware of. Uh, and, and the reason why, I don't, number one reason why I don't believe it's a parable is that Jesus gives the person in this story a name. None of the other parables he names anybody. He goes, there's a man who goes out to sow a field. Uh, even in the parable of the, the, the pearl of great price, where the, there's a man who finds a pearl buried in a field, who goes and sells everything that he has to buy that field because of the value of the pearl that he found. Nobody's given a name. They're just generic people. Like, I didn't give a name to the little boy or little girl, cross, and you, you were able to make that little kid crossing the street a boy or a girl based on your own personal experience, right? But by Jesus giving the guy's name, he takes away your ability to put yourself in this story because this isn't you. It's a real dude named Lazarus. The second reason why I don't believe it's a made-up story is that everybody knew that Mary and Martha had a brother whose name was Lazarus, who was one of Jesus' best friends. Lazarus was a very popular person and very well-known person to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So if I'm going to make up a story that's, that's going to be good or bad, I'm not going to make up a story about a, about a, a dead dude named Pastor Ken. Because Pastor Ken's going to say, what you saying? Like, are you, what, what, like, is this about me? No, it's not about you. It's about another Pastor Ken. <laughs> so Jesus has this guy named Lazarus who follows him everywhere. Like it's one of his followers. And so if he's going to make up a name about somebody, it's just a made-up story. Why would he use the name? that? Everybody, is, is, this, is this him? Is this what's going to happen to him when he dies? No, it's not him. Then why, why are you using his name? This is confusing. So the only reason he would use the name Lazarus is if this person's name really was Lazarus. So this is a real dude who really was poor, who lived at the gates of a real dude who really was wealthy. And the story isn't about economics. Uh, like, there's, there's instructions uh, from God to those who are wealthy with this world's riches, the Bible says. So it's not saying that rich people go to hell. That's not the message of the story. We're going to get to that. And I just, you're like, oh, he goes to hell? Yeah, I'm sorry. I just, just spoiled the, the, spoiler alert. Okay, guy goes to hell. We're going to read that in just a second. But it's not a condemnation of, of the wealthy. Jesus just said that rich people are, are just, it, it's hard for them to trust in anything except money, which is pretty much most Americans, Right? And, and, and you don't even have to be American. You could be an immigrant to this country, and you came here for what reason? Make money. Uh, so, and not, nothing wrong with money. I, I need it just like you do, but we spend our entire lives chasing it as if it's the only thing that matters, right? And we will actually cut people off who block us from getting more of it, right? And, and, and so this guy was just that way. Back to the story. Verse 22, finally the poor man died. Uh, and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham because of, of faith, obviously. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead, uh, Hades. Uh, there in torment, so we know that it's a, a literal place of torment. He saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side, so he was still self-aware. And he was aware of his surroundings. And he was aware that other people were not experiencing what he was experiencing. 
So that's, that's what we know about this literal place, hell, is that you are 100% aware of who you are and where you're at. The rich man shouted, verse 24, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted except what? <laughs> Faith. And Lazarus had nothing except what? Faith. Uh, so now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And beside, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to where you are at. Neither can anyone cross over from where you are to where we are. Uh, I had somebody at the service last night ask me, what, a, what, a, what about purgatory? And purgatory, as I understand it from history, was kind of fabricated for the purpose of indulgences so that you could give more money to get out and cross over that gulf the Bible says that you can't cross over. So they got rid of the abusive practices of indulgences, but they kept purgatory, which you now just have to pray yourself out of. But the scriptures, you won't find the only temporary holding place isn't called purgatory. The temporary but not final holding place for those who have died without faith, rescuing faith in Jesus, is, is hell. Like, that's the temporary holding place. It's not called purgatory in the Bible. It's called hell in the Bible. And you can't get out. You made your choice. You won't find the teaching. Read, read the entire Bible. I'm, I'm now on my sixth time. You will not find the teaching anywhere in the Bible that anybody, once they die, can switch teams. It's not there. And I challenge you to find it. It's not there. Once you die, you get your wish. Either you have walked into, because God drew you into a relationship with himself through faith in his son, Jesus, or you have said no. You have said, God, your will be done, or God has now said, fine, your will be done. So he, he's completely aware. So the first thing he asks for is some relief from the torment. Verse 27, when he finds out he can't get relief from his torment, what's the very next thing he says? We think that the next thing that he might say is that this is unfair. I, I don't deserve this. This is an injustice. Because we know people have been to prison, and there's no guilty people in prison. Everybody in prison is what? Everybody is innocent, they say. Nobody deserves what they're getting. So then we kind of think, we transpose that idea on hell, that the people in hell probably feel the exact same way. But let me show you what people in hell, number one, are concerned with. Number one, they're concerned with relief. The second thought that comes into their mind is in verse 20, 27. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's house, for I have five more brothers, and I want him to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. You know what you'll find in this passage of Scripture? That there's nobody in hell who thinks they're innocent. 
There's nobody who will ever go to hell who doesn't know for a fact that it's exactly what they deserve. And the only reason why some of us have a problem with that is that we don't think we're all that dirty. We're like that white shirt you've had in your closet for about 10 years, that white pair of gym socks that you've had, that you get them out of the washer and you're like, those still look good. That shirt still looks good until somebody buys you a brand new white shirt and then you put it in your closet next to your other white shirt and then you find out your other white shirt ain't all that what? White. Because now you're comparing it to something that it actually is and then you never wear your old one ever again because you didn't notice it, but it wasn't white anymore. And the reason why we don't think we're all that bad is because we're comparing ourselves to people who really are bad, right? But you're not comparing yourself to Mother Teresa, are you? No. When you think of, are you a good person? You say, yeah. You know why? Because you're comparing yourself to your sister-in-law. Everybody's a good person compared to her. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, sorry, Becky. But it's true. Everybody here is better. No, that's a joke. That's a joke. That's horrible. She doesn't watch the services anyway, so we're good. But we always compare ourselves to people, like, who do you compare yourself to? Like drug dealers. You compare yourself, but drug dealers are comparing themselves to people who hurt kids, who are comparing themselves to people who traffic, who compare themselves to people who murder, who compare them, like, ev like ev ev people on death row are still going, well, at least I didn't do it with an axe. Right? Like, everybody's got somebody farther down that we're comparing ourselves to so that we can think of ourselves as a little bit more cleaner than what we are. But when we enter eternity, we get to see what purity and righteousness really looks like. And in comparison, every single one of us will know for a fact, I deserve exactly what I get. All I care about now is that everybody I know, love, and care about doesn't end up here. That's all you'll care about in that moment. And here's, here's what he says. But Abraham said, this is his answer, verse 29. Uh, Moses and the prophets have warned them, your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, uh, even if that happens, they won't listen to Moses and the prophets. They won't listen even if somebody rises from the dead. Because somebody ended up rising from the dead, and we still don't believe him. Nobody gets special treatments. You know what everybody gets? Everybody gets the exact same things. The writings of the prophets and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the only proof you're ever going to get. And on those two things alone, you have to choose whether or not you will turn from the sin that is in your heart and begin following after the one who rose from the dead as a payment for the sins you've racked up against God or not. That determines where you spend eternity. Back to the narrative in Revelation chapter 20. Because we're not at the end yet. The world still exists. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones and the people sitting on them had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. Uh, this is through that time of tribulation, time of judgment. Uh, they had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Jesus for a thousand 
years. This is the first resurrection. The, the rest of those who had died uh, apart from God, those who had died during the Battle of Armageddon, those who had died during the 21 judgments, uh, having rejected God, those who had died throughout human history all the way up until this future moment in time, having rejected faith in God and the offer of, of, that he makes for, for sin, they stay dead. The only people that are resurrected, um, by the way, all of those Christians, followers of God, by faith, even those who lived before the time of Christ, trusting that someday God would show up and die for sin, were made right with God, just like those who have to, by faith, trust that God did show up and die, die for sin. We've all, we've all we, we came back down to earth on, on horses. We're, we're still here. Uh, those who, those followers of Jesus, the only people that, who are in right relationship with God who are not walking the earth right now are those hun few hundred thousand who, who were beheaded and killed during those seven years. So they're resurrected to join the rest of us for a thousand years. Uh, then we're going to skip down to um, uh, verse 6. Blessed and holy are they, are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God in Christ uh, and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7, when the thousand years comes to an end, Satan, and, and by the way, uh, Micah chapter 4 uh, talks about this, so this is the Hebrew Tanakh, talks about that thousand year period of time. So there is a future point in which mankind will get as bad as mankind was in the days of Noah. We're not there yet, apparently, or else it would be happening. So we're, it's going to get worse here. When, when God says, okay, I'm, I'm done, I'm, I'm done, is when there's a seven-year period of judgment. At the end of the seven-year period of judgment, everybody gets their wish, whether or not they were in right relationship with God or rejected the creator of life, and now they find death. And then there's a thousand years of peace, where those who had died apart from God stay dead, those who had turned from their sin that separated them from God, then spend a thousand years together in the presence of God, and we recreate culture and life and economy and uh, on, on this earth during those thousand years. At the end of those thousand years, Satan is led out of the bottomless pit, and here's what he does. Uh, verse, verse 8. Oh, by the way, during those thousand years, I was going to say, sorry. Malachi, excuse me, Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, describe this period of time uh, as, as peaceful, where all the nations of the world that are represented during this time uh, will come to Jerusalem and worship God in, in person. Um, they will, it says they will beat their, their, their uh, uh, what does it say, their swords into plowshares. Uh, there's complete peace. Uh, Satan's not around stirring up trouble any longer. Um, and, then, and then the other verse is in Isaiah chapter 11, where it says that a wolf will lay down with a lamb, that a child will stick its hand in a snake hole and not be bit. Uh, animals, it says the lion will eat grass of the field like the deer. Uh, so I, I think uh, for those of us meat eaters, uh, during those thousand years, we're going to be vegans. So I'm struggling with that realization. So I, I, I just want God to create a tree that tastes like a cow. That's what I want, Jesus. Jesus, this is like almost like heaven. Can you make a tree that tastes like a cow? Uh, I'll, I'll be that guy who's out in the field just like chewing on a living cow's back. Uh, uh, sorry. That was weird. I don't know. I, was just I pictured it in my head, and I shouldn't have said it. Um, but he's let out. Verse 9. Uh, it says that he will gather the nations together called Gog and Magog. And that's actually talked about 
in two different times in, in the Old Testament also, in the Hebrew Bible, that there's a future date uh, when, when um, the, the nations of, of the world, uh, well, and it actually mentions Gog and Magog, which was a geographical reference that they understood then that we don't know about now, uh, will then be gathered against God himself who is sitting on his throne physically in the city of Jerusalem, which can't happen un until this, this happens. Um, so everything from here to the end is actually talked about in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Hebrew Bible is, as well. Um, uh, okay. Uh, back, back at it. Uh, then the devil, and, and, I saw at, and I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people in the beloved city. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and, and consumed them. Uh, then the devil who had been, and, and my first question is, where does this army that Satan raises up against God come from? Because if everybody who goes into the thousand years is a devoted follower of God by faith in his son Jesus, where do all these people come from that have rejected God and his son Jesus? These, the Bible didn't answer that. But apparently, those who went into hiding during the tribulation that God spared, and those that who died during the period of tribulation that he resurrected, were still allowed to create family. I mean, in the garden, mankind was given two instructions. Create family and create culture. Like, care for the earth. Nurture it. Like this is like, I want you to garden this thing. Bring order out of chaos, which is what we do during these thousand years. And so they're having kids. And those kids who are being born, our time in history will be completely foreign to them. Just like there's so much of the cultures that lived in ancient, before Babylon, going back to the Mesopotamians, there's so much of their culture that we don't understand or know because it's been lost to history. Those kids who will be born during that time, our time, will be a wisp of smoke to them. Like, like they're not going to know about this probably. Like, America, is, that's not going to be something they're... They've never been alive on the earth where Jesus wasn't physically sitting on a throne in Jerusalem. The idea that Jesus wasn't sitting on a throne in Jerusalem would be like, well, then what was it like in the world? Well, it was like this. And they're going to go, no. And people are like, killing each other? Why, why would they do that? Like, that's going to be so foreign to them. But they will also be given a free will choice on whether or not they want to repent of the sin that they're born with to begin following after Jesus. And they will, some, I don't know what percentage, will reject them. And their kids will reject. And their, but there's no death during this thousand years, Micah says. Nobody dies. So if everybody who's born over a thousand years has a ton of kids and none of those kids ever die. And they have a ton of kids who never die. And if every 25 or 30 years, more like new kids are now having kids of their own and none of them are dying, you could fill up this earth really quickly. So that's where Satan gathers this army. They come against the city of Jerusalem. Now we're at the very end of everything that we see. And then they get their wish, an eternity without God and the source of all that is life, and they're killed because that they wanted a life without God, they got it. Verse 10, then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Joining the beast and the false prophet, there will be torment, 
they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is why I'm not an annihilationist. An annihilationist believes that people who go to hell are just burnt up and they cease existing. But the Bible, as uncomfortable as it is to us, doesn't make it any less true, by the way, because us as parents, we've talked to our kids about uncomfortable things, and while they didn't understand it or it was uncomfortable for them to hear, it didn't make it any less true. So God tells us these things. He knows it's going to be very uncomfortable for us, but it doesn't make it any less true. But it is day and night forever and ever. It doesn't indicate that they stop existing. It's eternity. Living with the consequences of their choices. And I want you to know, Satan's the first one who experiences the lake of fire. Verse 11, and I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. This great white throne is now referred to, so there's the judgment seat of Christ, which happens with the believers. We talked about that during the seven years. And now there's a great white throne. Like, which judgment is Hitler at? Hitler's at this one. This is the one he's at. There's the great white throne, and I saw the one sitting on it. That's Jesus. And the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and the death... Uh, and death and grave, or the death and death and hell gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. So everybody who has ever lived in all of history, Cain will be in this. Cain and Abel, Cain will like like un, unless he repented of of the sin of killing his brother Abel. I don't see in the Bible where he did, but maybe he did. And, and truthfully, none of us can say who for sure will. Fairly confident Hitler will be there. But I'm just saying, outside of like a few people in history, I don't know if we can say for sure who will and who won't. But those who died, having never repented of their sin, turning by faith into God who would someday die for their sins or the God who one day did die for their sin, are now standing before God to be judged. And Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 talks about this, where Daniel, uh, all the way back during the time of the Babylonians, wrote that there would be a future date in which everybody who died would then be resurrected. And Daniel says in chapter 12, some for righteousness and some, some for judgment. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 25, where he says that the last judgment, I will separate all of humanity. The sheep will be on my right hand, and I will say to the sheep on my right hand, enter into the, your reward. And then the goats will be separated from the sheep on my left hand. And I'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you into outer darkness that will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is that moment. And what deed does God require of you? Jesus answers that. Because if, that, if I'm going to be judged on my deeds, like, like what is the one deed that I can do that's going to get me out of this? Jesus answers that question in John 6. In John chapter 6, we're going to read two more verses in just a second. But in John chapter 6, here's what Jesus says in verse 29. Uh, John 6 verse 29, Jesus says, Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. That's the work. That's the work that rescues you. All of the other deeds only compound your guilt. There's nothing you're going to do to earn immunity from God on Judgment Day. Because you will be judged according to your works, both great and small. Those who died on land, those who died on the sea, those who died in a battle, those who are in hell will all be resurrected, will stand before God physically and be judged on their deeds. And every one of us will admit that we are innocent or guilty. That we are guilty. And there's nothing that you can do to ever undo the things you've already done wrong. You know that's true. 
But there's one thing you can do that will exempt you from being judged on your deeds. You know what that is? Believe in the one that Jesus, that God sent. Dang it, that's, that's Jesus. Believe in the one that he sent. That's it, back at it. Verse 14, last two verses. Then death and the grave, the word that's actually used there is Hades, then death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible doesn't describe the lake of fire very much. But it is apparently such a bad mamma jamma that it can destroy hell. Hell is thrown into the lake of fire along with everybody else who has rejected God. This lake of fire is the second death, verse 15. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was also thrown into the lake of fire. There's still two more chapters in Revelation to go. So now what does God do with everybody who's left? I'll tell you next week. <laughs> so what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this? Well, if you're disconnected from God, I want you to see 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 again. If you're disconnected from God, what's God waiting for? I'll tell you what he's waiting for. He's waiting for you. You know why? Look at the end of that verse. Because he doesn't want this for anyone. In fact, we didn't have the time to look at it, but you guys will look at it during your life groups this week. There are two different verses in the Bible where it says that hell was not created for people. God didn't create this so that he could torture us. This was created as a lawful and righteous punishment for Satan and his demons. But when we choose the path they took, we get the end result they get. That isn't God's plan for you. That's why 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 is so important. God is still holding off on judgment. Why? For your sake. Why? So that you will at some point admit that you have sinned against a holy and righteous God. That you have sinned against your fellow man. And that if God is good, you deserve to be punished. Just like me. But because he was good, because he was love, he took your punishment for you. But if you don't accept the only offering God ever gave to pay off your debt, then your debt is still unpaid. But it must be paid. By who? You. That's why he talked about hell twice as much. Because he didn't want you to get squashed in the road. What do you do with this? Hold his hand so you don't get squashed. That's what you do with it. You finally let go of your pride. And you recognize that you can't save you. Only God can. And you let it go. God, I admit I'm guilty. I've sinned against you and against others and I'm sorry. I accept that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the only thing that pays off my sin. And while I would never ask you to die for me, since you're volunteering, I'd be crazy to ignore it. And I won't anymore. God, forgive me. God, save me. Change my heart. Change my life. I'm all in. I'm all yours. That's what you do with it. If you're a follower of Jesus, I know what you should do with it. 
Quit living like everybody else. Quit chasing the same things everybody else is chasing for. Understand that the three friends you prayed for before I got up to talk really will spend forever separated from God in hell unless they repent of their own sin. When was the last time you cried because somebody you love will spend forever separated from God in hell? When is the realization? Because I promise you at the great white throne judgment, when you see your best friend bow their knee as Jesus said, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father for all of eternity. When you see your best friend bow their knee, find, listen, everybody who's ever lived will admit Jesus is Lord. Some will just do it too late. But when you see your best friend bow and say, wow, you really are Lord. And he says, depart from me, you worker of sin. You are never mine. I promise you, on that day, you will give up everything you ever wasted your time on from now until the end of your life to come back to this day and do the rest of your life different. And if you are wise, the realization of that will cause you to let go of your hate, your bitterness, your porn, your greed, your lust. Your desire for more and more and more and more and more and more and more. Start focusing on how I can live my life in such a way that I will be attractive to those who are farthest from God so I will earn the opportunity to become a friend with those that he loves so that maybe they will see in me the love that he has for them. Maybe they will initiate conversations about God in eternity so that I can draw them to faith in Jesus also so that they can get a chance to be rescued from sin. You know what you should do? Rearrange your entire life around this one priority, the rescue of all of mankind from sin, because that's what God has rearranged all of his priorities around. You should do the same. That's what we do with this. Wow, that was intense. Let's pray. But you got, you got homework. You got something you need to do with this. I just don't know what it is. I hope you do. If you would bow your head with me. God, rescue us from the sin that is in us. I focus a whole lot on the sin that is in the world and I focus so little on the sin that is in me. And if that's you, you tell him that too. If you're disconnected from God, then your prayer is, God, rescue me from the sin that is in me. Jesus, save me from my sin. I accept your death, your burial, and your resurrection is the only thing that pays off my debt before a holy and righteous God. Tell him that. God, take away my sin. Forgive me for it. Save me from it. I want to follow you, I just, I don't know how. Help me with this. Help me follow you, Jesus, with the rest of my life. Nobody looking around, please. This is a, a private moment of prayer. But how many of you guys would say, Sean, that's my prayer right now. I want God to take away my sin. I want him to save me. I want him to help me follow him with the rest of my life. If that's been your prayer, can you put your hand up and write back down real quick? Rock on. For those of you guys who've already come to that place, then your prayer is, God, help me to rearrange my life around that priority. Forgive me, God, for wasting so much of my life chasing after the things that won't make an eternal difference at all. Make that your prayer. God, I pray that you're pleased by the attitude of our hearts and the prayers that we're making from our hearts. God, I know that you love us, and I know that because you've still delayed judgment, because you're still waiting on us to turn from our sin, to follow after you so that we can be rescued. God, I love you for loving me even when I don't love you. God, help me to love you more. That's my prayer. I ask this. We all pray this in the name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.